Why does communism suck so bad? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm going to try to get into some of them right now. Um, first of all, it doesn't work. It was tried. It was tried by many countries in the 20th century, and it's still in some ways being tried today. If you think about the glorious October Revolution, where Lenin and the Reds overthrew the whites in Russia to usher in the new era of communist dictatorship of the proletariat, that lasted for mm, about 70 years. And in the end, it had failed. The experiment had totally failed. And then it was tried again in China. And just like their Russian counterparts, there was mass starvation. There were giant gulag systems used to produce slave labor to prop up the failing economy. There were a small number of people in which all the power was concentrated, namely in, uh, in Russia, you had the Bolshevik party. And then, um, later on they were disbanded as the Bolsheviks. Uh, and then they just became the, you know, um, the Russian communist party, I guess you could say, or the Soviet communist party. But then in China, you had the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP, which still persists to this day. And just between those two countries, it's estimated that 85 million people were killed. But then you go on to the other Eastern Bloc countries. Um, It was tried in the Balkans. It was tried in Romania, Czechoslovakia. These all, all these countries required dictatorships. You couldn't just have this worker's paradise that they were shooting for. You see, in the beginning, communism was codified, not necessarily started, but codified by Marx and Engels. Karl Marx and and Frederick Engels. And they published the Communist Manifesto, which basically said that the workers would unite and overthrow the overlords, which had their foot on the peasants' necks, and they would be able to usher in the new era of the dictatorship of the proletariat, where all the workers, the people who actually produce stuff, would be the people in charge. And it wouldn't just be these rent-seeking bourgeoisie, you know, sucking the peasantry dry for every drop that they had, it would be the actual workers themselves seeing the fruits of their labors and being able to determine what uh, they they wanted to do with it and where, where which direction the state would go with it. Now, in the beginning, um, it was thought that, well, if it's going to be a dictator, dictatorship of the proletariat, it should be leaderless, right? We shouldn't have leaders. Leaders are the people that oppress us, right? I mean, we're coming out of medieval Europe here. And in medieval Europe, you had the kings, you had the knights, 
you know, you had the upper class and you had basically the lower class. There was no middle class. And the kings and the knights um, had the peasants working for them and they would take 80% of the goods that the peasants produced and they would um, allow them to keep 20% to keep their family alive. And communism steps in and says, no, there's no more of that going on. We are going to keep 100% of what we produce. And we'll distribute it amongst ourselves, each according to his need, right? So we'll share everything. There will be no personal property. You know, the, the idea is that we all kind of live in this giant commune and we'll be able to move forward in that way. But the problem was, is early on, as they saw with Lenin, so there had been socialist revolutions trying to happen. Um, you can go all the way back to the French Revolution, where the socialists, which had a form of, I guess you could say communism, but it wasn't to the codified version that was put forth in the Communist Manifesto. It wasn't this, quite the same. It would have been a, a more um, a more mild version of this communism, but this had been happening for, you know, I guess at this point, over a hundred years, probably a hundred fifty years. There was these socialists, but then Lenin came in, and Lenin and the Bolsheviks came in, and it was instantly apparent that there would be a ruling class, but. You wouldn't call it a ruling class. See, Lenin wouldn't call himself the leader. You know, it was, he was known as Comrade Lenin, and he would refer to other people as Comrade. But if you were to go against Lenin's vision for Russia, you effectively would be going against a king. He'd have you shot. So the whole idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat went out of the window pretty much right away from the beginning in the first experiment with communism. The only state, and it, this gets an honorable mention here, the only state that actually fully attempted to produce the type of dictatorship of the proletariat, the workers' united equality state, was the... Uh, Cambodian Khmer Rouge, right? So the red Khmers, Rouge, you know, red, uh, is, Rouge is red in French. Um, the Khmer Rouge initially had no leader or they were, they were supposed to not have a leader. And to the point where if you met a patrol of Khmer Rouge in the jungle and you asked them, Hey, who's in charge here? They'd cut your head off immediately because no one was supposed to be in charge. But just like it happens in every other situation, somebody came to the fore, and that somebody's name was Pol Pot. And he still tried out the facade of being this uh, egalitarian uh, person who, who wasn't in charge but really was. So he'd act like, I'm just a comrade here, just another revolutionary in the jungle. But in reality, he was calling all the shots. So... I guess what I'm trying to say here is as much as communism is attempted, it always tends to focus its power in the hands of the few. 
the few that are the strongest, the most audacious, the most charismatic, these people rise to the top. They automatically do. And as much as it tries to fight off the evils of capitalism worming its way into it, it produces things like black markets, which have a very capitalistic style to them, even though they're run by gangsters and underworld figures. It's just supply and demand. And there are sort of many states that pop up as sort of a second layer underneath the, um, the face layer of the, the state. So, for instance, in Russia, in the 80s, many people that went there, because they started letting reporters in in the 80s, many people that went there said that they would drive up to a checkpoint and the, the guards, the Russian police, would search them or search their car or whatever, and, and they would say, ah, oh, like, I can't let you through. But if you offered them 100 rubles or 50 rubles or whatever it was, all of a sudden now, oh, looks like you're good to go. It was, everything was based on bribery, and, you know, even the, the state was getting involved. It didn't even have anything to do with the underworld. It was just like the state knew that they needed some way to make a living. And so the people that were making up the state did what people do. They used the means, the power at hand, to produce money for themselves and get ahead. Nowadays, I'm seeing t-shirts of Che Guevara. So Che Guevara was a revolutionary, a communist revolutionary from Argentina originally, who went over to Cuba and fought beside the Castros in the revolution in the 50s against Batista. And Che Guevara was, he's a very romanticized, sexy figure because he's kind of good looking. He wears this beret. He's in his fatigues. He's out in the jungle. It's got this sort of romantic feel about it when you see that Che Guevara picture of him smoking a cigarette, sitting there on a log with a gun in his hand. But what a lot of people don't realize or they don't care about is the fact that he himself was a very violent person. He loved to execute prisoners. He would do it himself. He preferred to shoot them in the back of the head. He loved doing it. And he might have killed thousands of Cuban dissidents, thousands, by his own hand. Not by his orders, by his own hand. We're seeing Antifa, the quote, anti-fascist groups in America, which I haven't, admittedly, I haven't heard a lot about them lately, probably because there are real world issues to deal with, like the coronavirus and, you know, whatever else is going on. But Antifa, a few years ago anyway, was a bunch of blue haired feminists running around trying to act like they were Che Guevara. And even some of them were wearing these t-shirts and acting like they were communist dissidents running around in the jungles of America, fighting this, fighting this um, war for independence from the, the, the slave-owning capitalists. But if they actually took the time to look into the history of Cuba, the communist state of Cuba, it would, it would 
do one of two things. Either they would just solidify them in their belief that they should continue what they're doing, which I think is probably what's happening. They probably know the truth. Or B, it would let them see that, look, the system doesn't work. And in order to make it work, you have to introduce slave labor or you have to kill a lot of people and get um, people to fear you so that they just fall in line. But even still, it will not produce like the capitalistic world will produce. So in Cuba, you have, you know, a few years ago, it opened up during the Obama administration and people that went over there were like looking into a time capsule. It was as if time had stood still since the 1950s. There was still old, you know, Hudson's and uh, old Chevrolets driving around 50s style that looked like straight out of a, a movie from that time period. It, they were just cobbled together and made to run for all these years. And they hadn't produced anything. They basically just kept things kind of together long enough to uh, make it to this century without completely collapsing. But I mean, there's, there's funding from Russia, there's funding from China. It's, you know, it wasn't them keeping their economy running. They had to have help. And this um, so- socialist paradise in the Pacific that served as sort of a bastion because it's only, what, 90 miles away from Florida. Um, Fidel and uh, his brother Ramon are heralded as... Um, the ultimate revolutionaries because of their close proximity to America. America wanted to overthrow them for decades. There's something like 300 attempts on Fidel's life through various groups, but mostly the CIA. That's a lot of attempts, uh, failed attempts. And still this guy just stood up there on his balcony smoking his cigars and, you know, looking every bit as defiant as the day he took over. That's why he is seen as, like, the ultimate strongman. Dictators all all over the world look up to him, even people that don't agree with him. Saddam. Saddam loved Fidel. You can watch on YouTube, he, there's a there's a interview between Saddam and Fidel in which Saddam is just beaming (laughs) looking at this guy because there he is in his fatigues still just smoking that cigar whatever America's 90 miles away it doesn't matter I beat them they can't handle me I beat them in the missile crisis I beat them in the bay of pigs I beat them in this and that oh and by the way the missile crisis Mm, we didn't really win that. That's another podcast, but we will get into that eventually. Um, that's kind of seen as an American victory, but basically it's just us barely snatching um, victory away from the jaws of fi- defeat, if you can even call it that. Um, but anyway, so back to the original subject here. Communism. Why, why is it such a, a bummer? Every time it comes into the picture, why has it just not been instituted correctly? Well, I think that it has. I think that it's been instituted in as well as it could be um, from Russia to China to Cuba 
to the South American and Central American dictators, to um, the Balkans, the Middle East, the Eastern Bloc countries, anywhere that socialism and communism have, have tried to gain a foothold, they have, they have destroyed everything. It's estimated that 100 million deaths in the 20th century are, are, are attributed to communism. And some people put that number way higher. I always tend to go towards the bottom number because I think um, numbers are inflated in history. It, people just do that. But um, even at the bottom end, we're looking at 80 million. And that's that's like both world wars. I mean, that's all the wars of the 20th century don't even add up to that. So... Um, and then not to mention, it started several wars. And it's all because of this. When, you're, when your economy's failing and when you need resources, when you need, uh, you, you need to expand in order to keep your economy going, you might as well just go and try and seize these resources, um, annexing other countries and... In the end, it just makes all those countries rot out from the inside because the only thing that produces, yes, it is those workers, but it's also the entrepreneurs. It's the people that employ all these workers. You know, Marx and Engels thought that the, since the, the, uh, the laborers and the bottom end peasants are the ones actually producing that they're the ones that all of the productivity comes from, but they didn't realize that the landowners by allowing peasants to work their land and by expanding their business and investing in new technologies, they didn't realize that this was actually producing more wealth and you need that sort of second layer above the bottom end laborers. Now you can bring the bottom end up. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that to take the lower class and try to move it up. But you will always have sort of a, a class of people that are the movers and shakers, the thinkers, the entrepreneurs, the people that do things outside of the box, the people that create things like the iPhone, the airplane, the um, internal combustion engine. This doesn't come from the bottom end laborers. But Marx and Engels didn't, they, they would have disagreed with that. And, um, and because of that, it left hundreds of millions of de uh, deaths in its wake, just from that simple idea. And the the state seizing all property, the state being the the organ in which everything exists and has its being. And then not to mention the fact that you have to then get rid of religion because religion again creates another class, right? That's, that's their thinking. So not only was it the landowners or the kulaks, which Lenin and then Stalin started to exterminate, but they also went after the priestly class. Because the priestly class was giving them orders from another higher up. Somebody that didn't fit within the state's rubric. God. God is outside of the state. God is above the state. 
These people are not going to take orders from the state that go against God's orders. So what do you have to do? You have to start throwing priests in prison. You have to shut down churches. And you have to kill people who go against the orders of the state in relation to religion. It's kind of the only way to implement it. Um, If you start allowing that, if you start allowing that the priestly class is allowed to continue, then people will just do things according to their conscience. So the only way to get these people to make their conscience align with the state is to uh, shut down the churches completely or get the churches to only preach the state's propaganda. If you can use this, the, the, the church for a propaganda tool, then it's okay to let it stay. That's why North Korea still has um, a, quote, church. It's North Korea has these churches and they say that they're open to all denominations and blah, 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 blah. But in reality, it's just there's a puppet church that they set up and allow to preach the propaganda of the dear leader. So um, it, it destroys everything it touches. And I think people who are flirting with socialism, who are flirting with the idea of socializing things, um, need to look really hard at what they're advocating. Now, I'm not saying everything. Obviously, there are socialist things that we have in our society. So the fire department is like a socialized thing. We all know that we got to pay taxes, that we can support the fire department because we can't just count on our neighbors being available to come and put out the fire in our house. We can't just count on our neighbors having enough, you know, having a fire truck to come over and put out that fire. It just, you just probably won't do that, you know, or like a lot of construction people won't like this, but inspectors, right? Inspectors, um, housing inspectors, uh, protect the people that live in these houses. So there are no, no housing inspectors, um, in Haiti. And when the hurricane hit all these houses, which had a heavy roof and just were sitting on stilts, fell in and killed thousands of people, thousands of people. And you would think that after that, the people would have learned from that mistake and gone and went, okay, let's build structurally sound houses. Well, A, they don't really have the resources, but B, they didn't even do that. They didn't care. They put up the exact same house on the exact same foundation as they had before. So when the next hurricane comes, you can expect the same thing to happen again. In America, we have these inspectors who make us put things like hurricane clips on, um, on joists and stuff like that. So when a tornado rips through, it doesn't just pull your deck up or your roof off and throw things around and, and, and kill everyone inside. You kind of need these little things, these little pockets of socialism in your nation. But these are all things that we've agreed on. And we can have debates about other little things, you know, other little parts of the, um, you know, healthcare or whatever. Um, I don't know. There's, there's maybe a discussion to be had there. But once you start that process, you have to know when to end it. And you have to end it. You can't just keep socializing things. Because eventually, you end up, well, as Margaret Thatcher said, you run out of other people's money to spend. We have to make sure that everything can be paid for if we are to do it in a socialistic manner. But I think we always should err on the side of the free market. What can the free market do for us? 
And if it can't do it, then we should set in place guidelines that say, okay, look, you're going too far. The state's going too far in this situation. They're demanding too many taxes. They are pushing too much for control over, um, over things that, you know, that should be left to the individual. For instance, what comes to mind right now is in Britain a few years ago, there was a kid who had an ailment. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, whether it was an advanced cancer or some sort of disease, but it was killing him. And the state decided not to allocate any more resources towards him. And they said, we're cutting you off. Uh, this kid has to die. And when that happened, there were hospitals in the United States that said, we will take him and we will try to do treatment on him. It's at least something. Let's try and save this kid's life. And Britain would not let him leave. The parents wanted to leave. They wanted to go and try something in the United States. But they said, Britain said, no, he has to die. I will tell you right now, if that comes and that is in America, where there are police officers outside of the door of my child in his hospital bed, and I cannot go in there, I cannot, I cannot take him away and go and do whatever it is that I want to do to try and save his life and spend whatever resources I want to, I will become a terrorist at that point. At that point, the state has gone too far. That's the type of thing that I'm trying to stay away from. That's the type of thing we all should be trying to stay away from. That's the type of thing that socialism, hardcore socialism, let me make that clear. Hardcore socialism and communism eventually always get to. They will push that far. And we need to make sure we avoid that at all costs.